This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today, we're hearing from writer and author Fatima Bhutto, an interview which was first released on our podcast series, How I Found My Voice. Here's Fatima herself talking to Samir Ahmed. When my father stepped out of the car to ask what was happening, a signal was given to shoot to commence firing. And uh, my father and six other men were killed that night. Power is an incredibly corrosive, corrosive force. My father was a threat to her. My father was a critic. My aunt uh, herself was killed years later, and so there's no chance to ask her. And welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed, and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and performers grow up to become such great communicators? If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Fatima Bhutto is a journalist and novelist and a real citizen of the world. Born in Kabul, raised in Syria and educated in New York and London. And she joins me now. You've reported from Lebanon, from Iran, from Cuba, and you are an activist. I love reading your social media feeds, which are full of kind of forthright comments about everything from religious extremism to feminism uh, to Western anti-Muslim hypocrisy. Your last novel, The Runaways, was a sensitive and engaging thriller about teenagers drawn into joining. Daesh. And your latest book, New Kings of the World, is dispatches about the global impact of Bollywood, of Turkish dramas and South Korean K-pop. I have to mention, of course, the family name, Bhutto, which carries quite some resonance as one of the most well-known political dynasties in Pakistan. Your grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the first democratically elected prime minister of the country, was overthrown in a military coup and he was executed. And I remember that day. It's said that the history of the Bhutto family mirrors the history of Pakistan. I don't know how you feel about such a a claim, but thank you, Fatima, for coming on to talk about how you found your voice. And I want to take you back to the start. So you're born in Kabul in a household where your father was essentially in exile, wasn't he, from uh, Zia-ul-Haq's military regime. But he was planning, would it be fair to say, a revolution with your uncle? Well, thank you, Samira, for that welcome and introduction. It's (laughs) hard to begin speaking after all that. My father was in exile in Afghanistan and he was resisting the military dictatorship. 
Um, he was a very young man. He was 28 years old when I was born, but he was 25 years old when Pakistan's upward path was halted and halted quite brutally by a military dictatorship that essentially stopped the momentum that Pakistan had been building for itself. It was an incredibly young country at the time. And General Ziaul Haq, who was a CIA-backed dictator, just brutalized the society. So there was mass censorship, mass arrests, public floggings. Journalists were rounded up and whipped in stadiums. And my father was one of the political young Pakistanis at the time, resisting the dictatorship actively. But I would say, I think my birth got a bit in the way. It sounds like a very tense time, and it certainly was before I was born, he left Afghanistan soon afterwards. Um, yeah, I, you moved to Damascus. And we moved to Damascus. And you lived there till you were 12. So what was that time like? Yeah, we lived there till I was 12. And my father becomes a single father. And his life is now haircuts for little girls and bedtime stories and teaching me how to read and write. And we had a pretty strange, but also a normal, fun childhood. Syria at the time was quite a closed society. And I wrote about this a little bit in New Kings of the World. It, it was a time when you couldn't really get very much except the BBC World Service news on the radio. This would have been, what, the 1980s? 80s, yeah, exactly. And so we got our news on the radio from the BBC, but you couldn't really pick up Western newspapers or, or things like that. At the same time, of course, Western culture was unavoidable. So you, you got all the Eddie Murphy movies or episodes of Dallas and Cheers and things like that. It was an unusual time, but I had a happy childhood in Syria. Well, you mentioned your father was a single dad. So what was mm. happening in your family? Where was yeah. your mum? My parents divorced uh, when I was quite young, about three years old. And I was very attached to my father. And so I adapted quite easily. And he, he became my father and, and mother and babysitter and best friend and and everything rolled into one and I really credit him actually with so much because being raised by a father who never told you there were any limits to what you could do or should do was incredibly liberating and, and strangely remains till this day. There is a fearlessness about you that comes off so early from the first time <laughs> someone meets you. And I'm guessing now this goes yeah. back to just the environment that your father created at home. Yes, he did this incredible thing, which was that he never lied to me. So he never pretended that things were not frightening at times and in fact spoke quite freely around me. So I knew things like dictatorship and martial law. And I knew these words at a young age and I knew that bad things had happened in my family and I, I could see my father's pain and he never hid his feelings either. So I, I saw him struggle. But at the same time, he was somebody who loved life and enjoyed life and was curious about the world. And and so he didn't teach me to be afraid. He taught me to be unafraid, but at the same time, to be vulnerable as well. And I, it, it's amazing that even today, I mean, I'm 37 now, my father was killed when I was 14, but it's those lessons that really I have with me today and that keep pushing me forward. You obviously have very positive memories, but I was thinking, you know, for someone, especially for a girl mm. to be growing up without her, her mum, you know, your father remarried mm. um, a Lebanese woman. Mm. And I'm fascinated by what that was like, because mm. obviously you then straight away have a culturally mixed home, don't you? Well, I guess our home was always culturally mixed because my father's mother was Iranian. And so there was already that. We then were living in Syria. I, growing up as a child 
of exile. I thought I was Syrian, essentially, and my, my father was always reminding me that I wasn't. And not only that I wasn't, but that that this was temporary. So I would, you know, put a poster up on my wall as a kid and he would say, oh, no, don't put that. We're, we're leaving soon. And I'd wow. say, yeah, well, okay, but we live here now. And he would say, no, 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 but it's not for long. And And so that created a strange... I mean, you know, being somewhere and not not being there at all. Oh, how interesting. It's like being a, almost a professional exile, yeah. waiting to go back to Pakistan all the time. Well, that my father lived constantly in that in that limbo. And he would say to me, you know, we're going to go home. We're going to go home soon. And I would say, when? And he would say, soon, really soon. But then I realized there was no soon, you know. And I would, I would press a bit more this year. And he'd say, yes, yes, this year. And the year would pass and we wouldn't leave. And so I started to ignore his, his um, predictions of when we would go home. And, and then one year he happened to be right. He said it. And that was the year we left. What year was that? That was 1993. So I was 11 at the time. And he decided to contest elections in Pakistan and return home after 16 years of, of exile. And I thought, oh, okay, well, fine. If you know, if he doesn't win, we won't go back. And you know, he's not going to win. And and he did win. And so, sort of overnight, we had to start making preparations to leave. And at the same time as that was true, remind us what he won. What was his election? He won um, a seat in, in the assembly um, from Larkana, which had been my my grandfather's seat. So, like an MP, exactly like an MP. And he was going to go back and. He had always lived with Pakistan, even when he was away from it. So he always spoke about it in, in very romantic terms, about the sea, you know, the Arabian Sea and, and the smell of salt in the air and all the food. So in a way, it, it was like returning home, even though it had never been a home for me, at least not up until that point. And so in 1993, we went back to Pakistan. I want you to take back a little bit before that mm -hmm. to say, when did you first realize that having the Bhutto name was significant? This is the Bhutto heartland. Generations have lived here. The Bhuttos belong to the country's feudal ruling class. The family is one of the largest and most powerful in the province of Sindh. Pakistani Bhutto To try to fathom the Bhutto's lasting influence, this is the place to start. Well, I knew things had happened in our family and I had seen some things happen in our family. So I understood that there was something around us. What had you seen happen? Well, I mean, I saw that my father was in exile, that I was growing up in a country that, that wasn't mine. My father's younger brother, my uncle, was killed when I was three years old. Um, we were all there when it happened. So... How did that happen? Baby? He was poisoned and... His wife was then jailed of, of not coming to the aid of a dying man. I'm so sorry. He died a very slow death and his wife had been in the house the whole time and had not alerted the police or, or called for an ambulance. So, so, yeah, I knew these things were happening around us. I didn't quite connect them. Well, maybe I did, but not consciously. I suppose the first time I realized there was something was the first time I went to Pakistan, which was when I was seven years old. And that was the first time I saw this country that I'd only heard about and that my father had sort of dreamed about all these years. And there I understood that there were people who knew who this family was and it, it meant something to people and maybe good things, maybe bad things, but, but something nonetheless. 
I'm wondering what you were like going to school, you know, in Pakistan, mm. because you are a very confident campaigner. I see you speaking out mm-hmm. on so many issues against hypocrisy and American gun control, mm. on the way Hollywood celebrates kind of white <laughs> savior stories. Were you always like this as a child? Yeah, I'm afraid I was actually. <laughs> I guess you know I was. I'm afraid I was. I mean, I I was a sensitive child, I think, but at the same time, I was always outspoken, and and no one had told me I shouldn't be. Is no. there an example of something you spoke up about? God, um, <laughs> trying to think now. I mean, I I just understood myself to be an adult, and people spoke to me like I was an adult. So it, it depended. I mean, I I used to get agitated about I mean when I was a child growing up in Syria in the first grade we started um, language lessons and all the native Arabic speakers went into the native class and all the foreigners went into the foreigner class uh, you know the colloquial Arabic lessons and I went into the native class and my father said oh no 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 no! you shouldn't be in the native class you're not Arab you should go into the foreigner class so he moved me to the colloquial class and I moved myself back to the native <laughs> native speaker class because I thought, oh, I'm not going to go to like a lower level of language class just because you want me to stay foreign. So little things like that. But um, but I but I always wanted to learn and I wanted to know what was wrong with things, why they were wrong and could they be better. Because and- also, can I say, as someone who shares a, a, a Pakistani heritage, I picked up a sense of a kind of racism that exists in some Indians and Pakistanis, that yeah. Arabs are somehow cruder people, they yeah. are less of value. And I wonder if that was something you were aware of. In Growing up in Syria, no. In that sense, my father was given shelter, really. So Syria Syria was a, was a refuge, was a haven. But no, I don't think so. My father also had a quite international upbringing in that sense. And like me, he had one of those sort of odd accents that's like neither here nor there. So he could fit in places and he loved to travel. So we didn't have that at home. We didn't have that at home. But in fact, it was the opposite. You know, to be a Pakistani in Syria was an unusual thing because people hadn't really encountered South Asians. So they thought they thought there was only one kind of South Asian. um, And they had... I guess the usual stereotypes people would have about South Asians. And, and, what would and, those be? What did you think? Well, I mean, that you all eat certain food or, you know, you all sound a certain way. You know, everyone does that stupid accent from Apu, The Simpsons, you know, that sort of accent yeah. at you. And they wonder why you don't speak like that. Um, I remember, like, I guess the same thing anyone who grows up outside their country feels. Like, my grandmother came to visit and I said, oh, my daddy is here which is, you know, your father's mother, and people were like, your daddy, you know, <laughs> and they make fun of you for how you speak. So actually, it was the opposite. I had that kind of thing. Okay. I want to ask about something um, difficult, which mm. is you were in your home the night mm. that your father was murdered. He was mm. assassinated on the road outside your house. Mm-hmm. This was in Karachi in Pakistan after you'd moved back. I think you were 14, mm-hmm. yeah. and you heard the gunshots. Do you mind if I ask mm. what you remember about that night? Yeah, I remember everything really about that night. Um, it was a very tense time because my father um, was a very outspoken critic of the government. Um, he spoke a lot about the corruption of the state and the violence of state forces. And at that time in the early to mid-90s, there were a spate of 
extrajudicial killings in Karachi in particular. I mean, some 3,000 people were killed by the police in what they called encounter killings. You know, an encounter means the police turn up in an area to arrest someone. This was the police version, of course. That person resisted and they got shot in the back. Murtaza Bhutto's last act had been one of defiance, a news conference to condemn the police who charged him over recent violence. I challenge them to come and arrest me if they can face the consequences afterwards, the political consequences. But the consequences now will be far greater than he'd envisaged after a shootout that began when police stopped his vehicle and two others on their way home. We should say the government at the time was administered by your aunt, yes, Benazir Bhutto. That's right, it's my father's eldest sister. Benazir Bhutto was the, was the prime minister at the time and... They they didn't have a good relationship. My father was very critical of her, of of her own corruption, and we started to feel that things were started to feel something sinister in the in the week before my father was killed. It had always been a very tense city, and it was a tense time. Um, but our house started to be surrounded. They started to put armored cars around the house, and you know, one day there was one armored vehicle, the next day there were two, the third day there were three. So we were expecting something and my father had said that they were going to try and arrest him and he packed a little bag with books and things he wanted to read. And and that's what we thought might happen, or at least that's what it looked like might happen. But he was coming back from an election, not actually an election rally, but a public meeting on the outskirts of Karachi. And when he was uh, reaching the road of our house... He was stopped. Um, there were about 100 policemen on the roads that night. Some were in trees and in sniper positions. And they had closed all the streetlights and they had moved all the guards of nearby residences and embassies into their house. And when my father stepped out of the car to ask what was happening, a signal was given to shoot to commence firing. And uh, my father and six other men were killed that night. They were shot multiple times and then left to bleed on the road. They were left there for about an hour. And when they were moved, they were not moved to hospitals. They were moved to clinics and nowhere that could treat a gunshot wound because the aim was, was to kill these men. And I was at home. I was waiting for my father in his, in his bedroom, actually. And so we heard everything. When we tried to leave our house, we were told by the police that there had been a robbery in the neighborhood and that we had to stay indoors. I'm so sorry. Thank you. One of the last promises you'd made to your father was about telling his story, wasn't it? Yes, my father was was killed two days after his birthday and he had just turned 42 years old and we'd come back from a, a birthday dinner and he'd been very quiet at dinner and uh, my father was never quiet. He was always talkative and he was very quiet and we came home and I started to ask him about his life and, you know, if he had any regrets, what did he remember from certain periods, things like that. And as we were talking, I said to him, you, you really have to write a book. And he loved writing my father and he loved reading. And he said, no, 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 you, you do it. 
you write my book for me. And I got very excited that he would think of that or trust me. And I got a pen and a paper and he said, no, 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 when I'm gone, not now. I, mean, I had no idea that that would be in, in days, but, but my father had encouraged my writing from a very young age. And he encouraged me not only to read, but, but also to write. And I, I wanted to be a writer really at that point. So it remained in the back of my mind. And I always felt it was a promise I owed my father, but also it was a promise I was scared to have to fulfill. I didn't want to do it in a sense because it would mean really that he was gone, that there was no one else to do it but me. And so it was almost 10 years later that I started, I started slowly the work of, of research that then became Songs of Blood and Sword. On the nights that your father died, you rang mm-hmm. your aunt, Benazir, mm-hmm. didn't you? I did. When we, we were not allowed to leave the house, you know, this isn't the days before cell phones and Twitter and satellite news and all that. So we had no idea what had happened, but my father wasn't coming home. And we were waiting and expecting him and expecting him. And he started to get nervous and I called the prime minister's house to talk to my aunt to find out what had happened, thinking maybe he'd been arrested. And um, I remember the, the, the ADC, the secretary, came on the line and, and was, already apolog- was already saying to me, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what he was talking about. So I just kept repeating that I needed to talk to my aunt. He kept telling me he was sorry. And at the end, he connected me not to my aunt, but to my aunt's husband, Asif Zardari. And uh, it was Zardari who told me, A, that I couldn't speak to my aunt. And when I insisted and said it was very urgent, something had happened, I needed to talk to my aunt. He said, "Uh, don't you know, your father's been shot. That's how we found out. You blame your aunt. Well, my aunt certainly uh, has a responsibility. In the aftermath of the killing, all the witnesses and survivors were arrested, but none of the police were. Um, Again, in the immediate aftermath, um, a tribunal was put forward by the government that was to investigate the assassination, but that had no legal power to pass sentence. That tribunal was organized by my aunt. And even though it had no legal power to pass sentence, it concluded that the assassination could not have been carried out except with approval from the highest bench of government. That would be her. And unfortunately, the way she continued to conduct herself didn't lend itself to any any claims of innocence. Why was that the case, do you think? Why, why, did, she, why did she do that? Why do you think she would have killed your father? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think that power is an incredibly corrosive, corrosive force. I think it produces a fear um, that's unexplainable in some cases. My father was a threat to her. My father was a critic and people had a hope and a promise for him. It hadn't been tested yet. It didn't have the chance to be tested. But unfortunately, my aunt uh, herself was killed years later. And so there's no chance to ask her. One of, one of the men who was on the road that night, she later inducted one of the, one of the um, police people, a high-ranking police intelligence officer was on the road that night. My father was killed. 
And after my father's death, my aunt welcomed that man into the central committee of her political party. I mean, those are strange things to do. They defy logic. I, so I couldn't possibly answer why she did them. No. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm wondering how your life changed mm. in that one terrible mm. moment. You were so young. Mm. I noticed you published a book of poetry mm. <laughs> at 15, just a, a year after the murder. Yes, I had been already... Um, well, I was very, very young and I had studied writing poetry for a school project and... You know, I would show them to my father, the poems, and he said to me, oh, you have to publish these. And, I mean, he was incredibly supportive, but... I thought, no, 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 don't, that's crazy. I'm a kid. Like, I'm a kid. Why would I publish poetry? And, and he'd gone and found publishers' addresses and clipped them out and written sample letters for me. And and so we were actually, before he was killed, we were in the process of, like, talking to these small presses and things like that. And because I was underage, I had to have a guardian's signature on one of these contracts. And I remember as things were changing in those days and growing menacing, I I said to my father, well, if you go to jail, who's going to sign my contract? <laughs> and he said, oh, put it in my, put it in my bag, you know, I'll sign it in jail. And, and of course that bag was packed in his room. And so after he was killed, it became even more important for me to publish those poems in his memory. And so, so I did Oxford University Press, Pakistan published them at the end, a year after the murder. I guess I kept writing always thinking that I would one day become like a proper grown-up writer, but still felt far away at that time. Well, it's interesting because your writing is is clear and you seem to be both an artist and a journalist at the same time. You sort of cut through to the truth. Well, I guess I, I've done a little bit of everything in, in that sense. I started my writing career really as a journalist. I wrote for a Pakistani paper and they sent Jung. me out. Yeah, Jung, and Jung was the Urdu paper and the news was the English. So they sent me out to do different stories and they sent me to Iran, they sent me to Cuba. They And they gave me space to write about what I wanted. So I, I learned really how to begin working as a proper writer. And you felt safe staying in Pakistan after your father died? Well, I, I did and I didn't. I mean, I never really feel 100% safe in Pakistan because, because of 
the fact that you really don't have any recourse in a country. Like, where do you go when something bad happens? You know, the courts don't protect you. The police don't protect you. So you do feel vulnerable. I think that's most people would say that, not just me. But at the same time, where is safe? You know, I'm, I don't know what's safe or where's safe. There's no place that's going to be 100% safe anywhere. You went on to study at Columbia University, which is in New York, mm-hmm. is that right? Um, Middle Eastern languages? Yeah, Middle Eastern languages. Because clearly being in the, uh, the yeah. native class for Arabic <laughs> paid off. Yeah. And then the uh, SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Yes. Um, South Asian government yes. you studied. Now, one might have thought yeah. with those choices, you were thinking about using your voice yeah. in active politics. Well, I did for a long period very seriously consider that. And I've always been fascinated by politics and interested and disturbed by politics. And I did study it. And at the same time as all that's true, I wouldn't really say I'm not in politics. I mean, I'm not in active politics, but I feel what I do is quite political, but at the same time, much freer than it would be if I was in actual politics. I I write about things that I care about, that, that are meaningful to me. Was there a family expectation at all that you would go into politics being who you were and from the family you were? Well, I think I think maybe people thought I might. Nobody ever forced me or or made it seem like I had to. I always wanted to, I always said I wanted to be a writer. I was allowed the freedom to choose. I mean nobody really groomed me in in that sense. But at the same time, you know, you you have a bit of grooming anyways, don't you? Because you you learn how to navigate certain things that you wouldn't otherwise. So I traveled across Pakistan with my family. With all of them, with my aunt, with my grandmother, with my father, on their political tours and trips. But it's those things that made me a writer, not a politician. I want to jump straight into uh, your fiction and how you use it to express what could be seen as kind of political concerns, activist mm-hmm. concerns. Um, the Runaways, your most recent novel, is a story about extremism, what draws people into it. Jihadi brides, young men going off, apparently happy to join Daesh, this torturing, murderous cult. Mm. Many people might think, I don't want to understand them. We've mm. seen the backlash against people like yeah. um, Shabina Begum and mm. um, you know others from uh, Britain in particular who've gone off to join Daesh. People think they're monsters. Why did you want to understand them? And I have to say, it's an incredibly humane and mm. thought-provoking book. Thank you. We've now had years and years and years of evidence that not understanding why these things happen leads to even more dangerous consequences. If we want to change the world we live in, if we want to be safer and more secure, then I think we have a duty to understand why people would be vulnerable to radicalism, why people would be drawn into violence. And we see what happens when people dismiss it and say, these are barbarians and we don't want to talk about them. It it makes it worse. And particularly, if you come from the non-Western world, then you know that the reasoning is flawed to begin with. The reasoning has been since 9-11 that these are people from a certain place, these are people of a certain religion, and this is how they are infected um, with these impulses. And of course, that's not true. 
I don't think radicalism is born out of religion at all. I think it's born out of humiliation and isolation and the fact that many, many young people today don't see a future for themselves in their countries. And if you don't see a future in your country, you will be vulnerable to anyone who offers you a future. And I think that's what hap- that's what's happened with a lot of these young people who have picked up, left lives of essential comfort, let's say, and gone off to join Daesh in uh, Iraq or Syria. It's been interesting seeing the rise of far-right yes. extremism, terrorist um, acts in um, North America and around Europe because it's massively increased threat. Um, mm-hmm. And when you look into the background, and again, it's mostly young men. It's very interesting. There you go. And in these, they suffer the same impulse, which is that they, they are clinging to a past, you know, and that past is like decades ago. That past is maybe even something they've never even lived through. But they cling to it because th- they see in their present that they are not respected, that their voice is not given a space, that people like them are somehow um, excluded from society. And they feel wounded and humiliated by that. I mean, I- ISIS f- <laughs> is born out of that. Yeah. But so are these Nazis, these neo-Nazis. You know, I hate the word white nationalist. Because that, what does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. If you're brown, they call you a terrorist. You know, if you're white, they call you a white. I mean, doesn't it's not even a word that. But but they are born exactly of the, the same impulse. You move so easily between cultures and continents. Mm-hmm. And in New Kings of the World, this fascinating book of dispatches, you're looking at the changing workings of soft power. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me briefly this thesis you have about how American power first spread its influence throughout kind of Asia yeah. and the Middle East through military bases. Um, yeah, I think I think our understanding is that, you know, Americana is spread by virtue of cool, that it's just, oh, Elvis was just entrancing and that's why everyone in the world wants to wear blue jeans and sing rock and roll. But it's really accompanied by militarism in a lot of senses. Um, today, for the first time in history, you have the lowest number of US bases and troops globally dispatched. But that number was incredibly high in in the 1950s and 1960s. You had American army bases essentially all over the world. Um, And those bases were not only conduits for American culture. They brought with them American movies, American music, American dress, American fashion. Um, But in the case of Korea, I think it's a really interesting example. Uh, When the Americans set up their bases in South Korea around the time of the, the Korean War in the 1950s, if you had all these troops, they had to be entertained somehow. They had they had to have something to do when they weren't uh, doing the work of, of of soldiering. And if you were a young Korean and you wanted to play rock and roll and you wanted to dance, you couldn't do that in clubs in Seoul because they played foxtrot music. You know, they played this stodgy, sort of limp sounding music. But you could on the bases. You could go to the bases and play, you know, electric guitar. And and K-pop is really born out of that, out of that beginning. It sounds like a strange beginning, mm. but but it's true. And and I think that's that's really how this culture spreads. And you know, American culture is just innocently accepted by all of us. We watch the movies. We don't even think twice about who's behind them or, or what the messaging is. And one example I always like is um, Mission Impossible. You know the 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 Tom Cruise films. The Tom Cruise films, exactly. It was first a TV show in the sixties and seventies, whenever it was, and now it's this mega billion dollar series of films. And Tom Cruise's character works for an organization called the IMF. 
you know, the imposs- <laughs> impossible missions force. But, you know, that's crazy. That's, that's, it's so, it's not even subliminal. It's so transparent. Yeah. But we don't, we don't even think about it. There's this fantastic, bizarre encounter you have with Shah Rukh Khan, the, yeah. the Bollywood superstar, who's filming for some Middle Eastern show in Dubai. And it's just that whole sense of the, Bollywood's impact now yeah. being so much bigger and exporting around the world. But it's not all positive. And you were very frank about your concerns about how Bollywood has changed and become co-opted by Hindu nationalists. Yes. Do you think people take that threat seriously enough? Um, well, you know, Samir, if I, I started writing New Kings of the World in 2016, and that's why I made the choice to include Bollywood. If I was writing the book today in 2019, I would not have included Bollywood because, oh, really? because I think that, I think that Bollywood has been always a very faithful mirror to Indian society. It's reflected the aspirations and the struggles and, and the fissures of, of Indian society from the 1940s. You know, the 1940s, 1950s Bollywood films were really idealistic films mm. about brotherhood and nation building and, and moral tales. Yes. The 1970s films were about injustice. And about the poor being dispossessed. Do you know, Arundhati Roy said what you said as well, which is Amitabh Bachchan, that superstar, yes. would play um, policemen or he'd yeah. play porters, yes. he'd play working class Shoe shine boys, you know, farmers. And then you have 1990s neoliberalism and then there are no more farmers in yes. Bollywood films and there are no more shoeshine boys and they are all multinational bankers who live in London and somewhere in Switzerland and have fast cars and... And that's fine. It, it reflects the time, you know, when India's undergoing neoliberal reforms. But today, Bollywood films are about war. You know, they are about this muscular jingoism that is violent and um, they've exclusive. Come, they've come to look a lot like Hollywood films of the 80s with the big buffed bodies as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. The aesthetic has got yes. a bit funny. But also the militaristic messaging. It's completely milita- militaristic. And... And I think that's alienating and I think it's dangerous. And I, I'm one of those people that really does believe that politics is in everything. You know, when I sit down to watch a Bollywood movie today, I'm not comfortable. I'm uncomfortable mm. watching it. And I think, unfortunately, culture only moves when it's free of constraints. It moves beautifully when it's free of constraints. It can have politics. It always will have politics. But when it constrains itself to a message, to pushing a message then that culture is going to be wounded. And it's and I think that's what's going to happen with Bollywood moving forward. Just remind us how you've noticed Modi, mm. uh, the Prime Minister specifically, mm. having an impact on and trying to use Bollywood mm. stars for well, his well, campaign. You, you see it. Uh, you, see, you see it most recently, you know, in, in February of this year, Pakistan and India stood again at the brink of war. These are nuclear armed nations and our air forces engaged in dogfights for the first time since 1971. And at that time, I was in Islamabad and Pakistani public figures were coming out to say, we do not want war. We do not want Indians to die. We do not want Pakistanis to die. We do not have any appetite for this. At the same time, Bollywood actors were coming out and cheering war and were cheering strikes on Pakistan. And to me, that was, I mean... Un- unimaginably disgusting. You know, can you imagine, I don't know, Tom Cruise cheering a drone strike? I mean, it, it sounds completely misplaced. Yeah. That's not the role of an artist. So I think it's it's been impacted like that. I think a lot of recent Bollywood films have been specific. I mean, there have been many films about Modi himself. There have been films um, about Modi's programs, you know, his sort of initiatives, his sort of soft initiatives, if you want to call them that. Now have Bollywood films about them. I think what's more interesting coming out of India are TV shows at the moment, you know, streaming. 
So the shows that are coming on Netflix or Amazon Prime, they were a little more interesting than what's coming out of Bollywood. Do you feel a responsibility to represent the voices of Pakistanis Mm. um, and of Islam that are not heard Mm. beneath the headlines? Because you speak out against the likes of you know, Richard Dawkins yeah. as being as damaging to productive discourse as Fox News is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't see myself as um as a voice for anyone really. I mean, I speak out about those things because I, I'm personally affronted by them. Um, you know, I I I believe in the idea of discourse, I believe in the idea of conversation and dialogue. And I don't think you get either of those from Richard Dawkins or Fox News. It's the same pushing of an agenda. And what I'm personally affronted by is that Richard Dawkins can be incredibly patriarchal and insulting, you know, when he stands up and says Muslim women need help, (laughs) you know, um, that's so demeaning to Muslim women as though we don't have capacity and capability to help ourselves. We need, you know, this sort of white savior like Richard Dawkins. So I'm personally offended by him. That's why I say it. Um, And Fox News is just an insult to everyone, isn't it? I've been looking at your Twitter feed and uh, this is you on the new Dakota Fanning film about a white Ethiopian refugee. Once again, Hollywood steps up to tell the urgent, unheard, timely stories of uh, white people. <laughs> and our novelist Lionel Shriver, there's no volume control on inexhaustible white privilege, but there should be. Uh, your frankness is so refreshing, but do you ever worry about the effects of potentially offending important people? No. I mean, I, I I try to go by the Hippocratic Oath. So I, I don't want to cause harm to anybody. And I don't want to be insulting to anybody or demeaning to anybody. But I think if somebody is um, exclusionary, and if somebody is bigoted, or somebody is offensive, then I think you have a right to say, that stops where you are. I don't accept that. And, and you know, there's a problem with your conversation. I think we have to say that. I think it's important. I think the idea um, of Hollywood telling that story, I mean, okay, none of us have seen the film, but it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? You know, yes, what, I've seen only a photograph of it. Why does there have to be a white woman in the story for us to have sympathy with a refugee's tale? And also, you know, Ethiopia has its own stories and its own narratives. Aren't they allowed those? I, I also think that's partially why Western culture is under threat from so many places because it assumes itself as the center. And the neutral center at that. Yes, of course. The enlightened objective center, as though such a thing could exist. And, you know, Hollywood has come so late to the idea of representation. They think that representation means that you put an Asian American person in a film, you know, one character, or you put a Mexican character in a TV show and boom, that's the end of the problem. Everyone feels seen and heard. But what they don't realize is why would we watch your show with one measly character when there is a whole industry you know, in the streets everywhere else in the world where the stories are Mexican, the producers are Mexican, the actors are Mexican, you know, or Asian American or African. There's a world out there. We live in a multipolar world and there is culture blossoming in so many points. We're not restricted to only one. Now, this is your view that there is a big global culture and it's just certain Western institutions are still refusing to see the world that way. Completely. I mean, you know, we were everybody in the world who is um, not white, was essentially supposed to stand up and give a standing ovation to crazy rich Asians, as though somehow this has now encompassed what it means to be Asian. Why would we do that when I can go and watch any number of Korean films, which are nuanced and sophisticated and, and incredibly elegantly told in, it, in their diversity, in their multiplicity, 
um, why do I have to cheer for one American film when there are libraries of film out there? I just, it's, it, to me, it seems <laughs> absurd. Well, especially when you see the row over the um, Asian writer oh, yes. who's, who's refused to work on the second one because they were offering her a, like a, an eighth a, of the money of, exactly. of the white male writer. Although you've made it clear you have no plans to go into politics, I just wonder if knowing that, you know, you carry the name Bhutto, mm -hmm. you have a life in Pakistan as well mm -hmm. as outside. Do you worry that there are people who see you as a threat just because you do speak out and you speak out on issues like corruption, you speak out on yeah. political issues? I, I, I don't know, really. You know, I think that I worked consistently as a writer, really, since I, I left college. So I don't know if people will take that as proof that I'd like to stay a writer or if they just see that as a, a placeholder job until I do. I, I really couldn't. I couldn't answer that. I don't know. Would, would, do you think it's possible something might tempt you into politics? I don't really think so, because I think that, but there are many answers. I mean, I think at points of, I have considered it and I have wanted to, and I made the choice not to. In Pakistan or elsewhere? In in Pakistan. But, but at the same time, you know, I'm free to say what I think at the moment, and I'm free to have opinions that might otherwise be impossible if I were in politics. I mean, those are enormous freedoms. I'm not sure I would rush to give up ever. And also, I, I do think I have a lot of hope for Pakistan. I, I don't I don't see that it's waiting for me in particular. I don't think that, you know, I, I have any special answer. That no one Why else are you has. hopeful? Because people look at, at it today and they wonder if the endemic corruption yeah. has really changed. Well, I think there's a difference between being hopeful for, for the people of a place than for the government of a place. Um, I think if you look at the people of Pakistan, they're incredibly young. We're a huge population something like 70% of our 200 million people almost are under the age of 30. Um, they're, they're a population that has, th this under 30 population has survived, you know, life under military dictatorship, terrorism, invasions, occupations. Um, they're survivors and, and they're hardworking and they're, di they're dynamic. And in that sense, you, you cannot be anything but hopeful and excited to see what will happen. Governments are obviously not great sources of, of hope for anyone, I would say. But I think Pakistan's, Pakistan today is in an interesting position in the world. It's always been. But I think our population is tired of war and tired of corruption and tired of the same old, same old. And I don't think they're going to allow it for, for forever. What are you going to do with your voice next? That's a good question. I'm a little burnt out after two books, <laughs> um, one fiction and one non-fiction. It's a bit unfair when you've just published <laughs> yeah. another book. But, uh. I don't know yet. I mean, it, the way it happened, The Runaways came out with not that much space between New Kings of the World. So I'm, I'm not sure what I will do next, whether it will be fiction or non-fiction. But I'm going to take a little marination period, I guess, to, to wait and see what strikes. Fatima Bhutto, thank you so much for talking about how you found your voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer was Farah Jasset. Mm -hmm.